Hey everyone, welcome to episode 85 of the Switch Focus podcast. I'm your host, Andy Corrigan. Uh, no Ginny this week, she's got some real life stuff happening, but I do have Andrew Brown. Hello. We're going to be chatting about the Switch's new battery life, Pillars of Eternity and its timing, DC Universe Online, the classic Doom, Resident Evil HD Remaster, uh, and then we're going to get some splicing from Ginny uh, for Songbird Symphony and... Fell seal. Okay, so let's kick off the show with updates from last week's episode. Okay, so after we recorded last week, I got uh, sent a code for Mutant Year Zero on the Switch. So having started on the Xbox on Games Pass, I was able to uh, boot up and just have a look at the the performance uh, that we discussed uh, last last week. Um, so I tried it in both docked and in handheld. So first of all. Uh, comparing it to the the Xbox version, the Switch version does come off definitely less f- favorably. It looks a little blurry. I'd say almost similarly to uh, Wolfenstein, which we we talked about last week. Um, I found it a bit muddy. So now I know uh, last week you you had concerns about the handheld version being like standard def and how they they'd used it as a a shortcut to get it to run yeah yeah i actually because of the blurriness and i think this is because i came from another version onto the switch version i found that the handheld version was definitely standard definition but i i felt like it looked sharper and i found that more pleasurable (laughs) what so yeah i i felt everything was clearer whereas playing in docked everything had sort of like the the Vaseline blurry look to it, maybe just down to it being on a you know smaller screen and shrinking the visuals down. But I I, f- I found that more enjoyable. Yeah, I don't know why, but I definitely agree with you. Like it being in standard def shouldn't be the way they they have it just run better on on handheld. I I feel like they have taken some shortcuts for the visuals on this, and I I do think that there's no reason why it shouldn't look better on Switch. But yeah, that's my take. I I played. Uh, so I bit a bit docked and uh, most of it handheld right up until uh, the point I got to in the Xbox version. I think I'm going to stick with the Xbox version. Yeah. Uh, just because I have the option there for better visuals. But uh, yeah, still so far so good. And uh, yeah, that's just that's just my quick take on the visuals on the Switch version. With that, let's move on to the latest Switch news. <laughs> Okay, the original model of the Switch, uh, but with improved battery life, is now hitting stores. Uh, has been tested with all features at maximum settings, and Breath of the Wild lasted an hour and a half longer than the first generation of Switches, which uh, is a pretty good return for anyone who's looking to get an upgrade on that. Um, we've discussed it before, I don't think either of us were in that much of a rush, because we're still hopeful of like a Pro Switch or a, a new Nintendo Switch which has more um, beefiness behind the processing power. But uh, yeah, if you've been hanging on as well, if you're uh, not an early adopter and and you want to get a Switch now, you're probably going to end up with a better unit. Um, is there any differences like in the packaging so you can tell which one is which? Because I'm just worried we're in this like, middle ground where people aren't instantly going to know which version they're getting. There's probably a difference in like the serial number or something that if you know to look for it, you can tell the difference. But... I've not seen anything reporting a way to know. 
Yeah, I, I think they should kind of make that stuff obvious. I, I know they still want to sell their old ones, but uh, yeah, just uh, make it at least visually different or, or make it clear. But, uh, another news, Pillars of Eternity launched this week. Um, not too much fanfare, I thought, for for such a beloved uh, RPG on, on PC. Uh, for me, I think it came out at the worst possible time um, in that like I've got uh, you know, forty to eighty hour strategy RPG on the go in, in Fire Emblem. Uh, there's a whole bunch of lengthy JRPGs and other RPGs coming out next month. Um, and the week that they've released this on Switch, they've released it in a AU at like sixty bucks. But at the same time, they've put both Pillars of Eternity one and two in a bundle for sixty bucks on Steam, which you know that's the same combined price as the Switch release, which seems self-defeating. Um, I can't justify picking it up on Switch at that price when I can get both on a PC. Um, and yeah, I can't see if there's any like physical version, because this is definitely one I'd prefer to have as part of my physical collection for Switch. Are you planning on picking this one up, or waiting for a sale, or do you, do you even have any interest in this one, Andrew? I'm certainly interested, but like you... I'm not going to pay that price for a digital game, especially looking at what I can pay for it on another platform. And I've asked the publisher several times if there's going to be a physical release for it, have received no response, uh, which I take to be a no. So <laughs> when it gets a good price drop, like less than $20, I will, I'll get it then, but not for $50. No, absolutely not. Yeah, I just... I... It just so happened I got the email from from Steam because it's on my wish list saying, "Hey, you can get both these games for sixty bucks." And I went on the Switch store when this kit went up and was like, "Huh." Quite often, when a game comes out on Switch that's a port, quite often you can get the same game the same day for lower on other platforms. I'm sure that's deliberate. It doesn't bother me that much, but it is kind of a scummy move. But I understand why it's done that way because you no know, new game on Switch there's a little bit of a, a press boost for it then, so put it on sale, yeah, people are more true. likely to buy it. You know, I, I get that. It doesn't bother me that much, even though it does kind of feel like it's screwing over Switch owners, but I think if you're a Switch owner, you know you're paying more for the games. I think that's just part of owning the platform is you have that expectation, so it doesn't really bother me that much. Yeah, my main problem is that like they've they've put it on the first game on Switch, and then like cut themselves out of selling switch versions by putting it on sale on pc because I'm, I'm sure most people who if they have a moderate pc will jump on that instead uh, and then it's one of those scenarios where people go oh well our games don't sell on switch for some reason <laughs> it's like that's why your timing is terrible <laughs> like save it for a summer sale or a christmas sale or, or whatever steam sale have their big ones they have on that like don't undercut your new release on another platform Otherwise, in other Obsidian uh, news, their new game, The Outer Worlds, got announced for Switch last week. I completely missed that. I, we could have mentioned it, but it was a very low-key announcement. Um, I'd take a, I'd take a guess at probably Panic Button being the ones to port, port it, because the, they seem to be the first-person shooter port specialists on, on this platform. Cue lots of people asking how it's going to run, uh, when we already know the answer. But uh, I was listening to um, podcasts the other day, and they were saying, you know, like how Obsidian uh, developed Fallout New Vegas, and this is kind of them trying to 
fudge their own version of Fallout New Vegas. Apparently it does feel like a, a mid-2000s Bethesda RPG. So that's interesting. Um, and that helps calm my fears about how it'll run, but the, the announcement certainly didn't because it was just sort of felt like it was done in passing. Have you looked at this one at all on or on any platform? Does it take your interest? I'm skeptical that this game is going to be any good. Uh, I think New Vegas is a a rightly well-remembered game, but I, I question whether, you know, 10 years later now it would be as well-remembered if it came out today than it, when it did come out and it was a real, you know, fusion of the original Fallout developers with, uh, with Bethesda's new engine and the license holder. But, you know, take that combination today, I'm not sure that anybody really demands that game today. And even less so with how well it will probably run on the Switch, which I'm not expecting it to be great. Uh, I, I'm very much waiting to see, uh, and I, I doubt that if I do get this, if I will be getting it on Switch, it'll probably be a PlayStation 4 get for me if I get it at all. Yeah, it's, it's also one of those, because I pay for Game Pass uh, Ultimate, it's day one on there. <laughs> so, um, but I, I think it'll fall into that bracket of uh, like The Witcher where... It'll, it'll either work well enough or it'll be a train wreck and I'm kind of curious and I'd like to see it for myself just for that purpose <laughs> but uh, yeah but it's uh, always good news when the Switch gets uh, you know the the big games from other platforms it's just let's see how that one pans out uh, and with that let's uh, talk about what we've been playing this week <laughs> Uh, let's start with uh, Resident Evil HD Remaster. Andrew, you've been playing that one. I did pick up the Resident Evil Origins collection, and I was loudly angry about the prices of these Resident Evil games when they launched back in May, I think it was, because they're $30 a piece. I said I absolutely refuse to pay more than $20, and then not too long back gamefly was selling the origins collection for forty dollars which has resident evil and resident evil zero on it that's 20 a piece so I, I immediately bought it because uh, uh even when i'm being a angry gamer yelling on the internet you know when i say something i, I commit to it so they cost they cost twenty dollars <laughs> so i bought them uh, and they're still good games, so I was happy to replay them here on the Switch. Although it's worth saying that, you know, you wait a year or so, you'll probably be able to get these games for $10 or $15 a piece, which would probably be the better way to go. But I'm a fan, so I was willing to pay uh, $20 a piece for them right now. And this is only half the package. I'm going to play Resident Evil Zero next week, but this is the Resident Evil... HD remaster, which is the 2019 Switch port of the 2014 HD remaster of the 2002 remake of the 1996 original. <laughs> I'm with you. <laughs> <laughs> uh, and I just wanted to talk about this game. You know, I, I could just say, you know, it's Resident Evil. People know what Resident Evil is. It's good. But I'm not sure people do because kids born the year this game came out are only just turning 18. And, you know, in the past 10 years or so, the games that have gotten all the attention have been the, the post-Resident Evil 4 games. Players who are as old as you and I are, yeah, we know what Resident Evil is, but I'm not really sure that younger people do. So I'm going to talk about it for a little bit because if you're imagining the, the over-the-shoulder zombie shooting game that 
to like Resident Evil 6, Resident Evil 5, or even Resident Evil 4, which I'm sure everybody knows what Resident Evil 4 is. This is not that game. This is much more of a a 90s style adventure game, but it de- definitely does still have some action in it because you are thrown into this mansion that is overrun with zombies. And the main point of the game is to find your way through this mansion by solving all the puzzles in it and finding all the keys so that way you can open up all the doors and all the while you're trying to deal with these zombies and your dwindling supplies you've got a handgun that you start with and a handful of bullets and you've got to keep yourself alive with your limited healing items and you've got to find more ammunition and more powerful weapons and if you're not careful you will run out of supplies and you will inevitably be unable to finish those puzzles and you will die. But if you did take out all those zombies and the guns and the survival mechanics, then this basically becomes like a late 90s sequel to Maniac Mansion. And in fact, if you play the game on the very easy difficulty, the combat is trivialized to the point that that's exactly what this game becomes. It's just a very... 90s style adventure game and I, I think it's it's good even on those merits alone but the zombie survival stuff does add something new to it and it's also relatively brief this was a game that was designed to be played and replayed it's doesn't take that long to get through even if you're just learning it and the idea is to play it and replay it reaching for greater and greater mastery of it Uh, along with metroid i think this was one of the earliest games to really codify and popularize speed running into its design and there's all kinds of scenarios you can set up when you go into the game at the start you really only have to choose between which character you play as and which character you play as they have different inventory sizes and well infamously jill has a bigger inventory and she also has barry who helps a lot more than chris's partner uh rebecca does so jill is definitely the way to start if you're a beginner because chris has a much harder time of going through things uh and also you do uh, unlock more modes when you beat the game like one dangerous zombie which adds a new zombie to the campaign that you cannot hurt in any way, otherwise it's an instant game over, and that zombie just appears throughout the mansion uh, in your first visit to it in like the first third of the game, and then it disappears after that. And there's also a real survivor mode, which disables auto-aim and makes it so that way the, the chest system that you use to store your items, uh, are, chests are no longer linked from room to room, so if you leave something... In the medicine room, you have to go back to the medicine room to get it. It makes it a much more uh, strategic game and much more of a a survivor game, even more so than its basic setting. And there's also invisible enemies, which is exactly what it sounds like. And there's no matter what scenario you're playing, the puzzles in the mansion and their solutions are always going to be the same, but the strategy that you're going to take to solve them is going to subtly change. And I have always found it very satisfying to play through the different you know, scenario modes because they do change the game up enough to keep it original and fresh. And here in the, uh, in the Switch version, since this is the port of the HD remaster, they've also adapted the trophies. Uh, I was a little weirded out at first because it, it just kind of fades onto the screen with this little pop-up window that has the achievement that you just achieved. It doesn't make a noise or anything. It's almost disconcerting at first. But then I, I 
after I beat the game, I went back to the main menu and I looked and I saw, oh, there's actually an achievement menu. And yeah, all the achievements from the PS4, they're just right there. And that gives you something else to shoot for. And it really just pushes you to uh, play the entirety of the game through the different scenarios rather than just playing as Jill the whole time. <laughs> but this, since this is a port of a PS4 HD update, there are some problems. Uh, Resident Evil does have the famous door opening screens animations that happen between each room in the original version of the game that was actually done to disguise loading screens as each room was loaded up uh, but by the time of the gamecube version which uh, this is a remake or this is an hd port of that gamecube remake those door animations were kept just because it was a recognizable part of resident evil even though the loading screens weren't really there anymore but the door animations are here but now the loading screens also exist in addition to those it even has a little loading circle so it's, it's a really strange situation that seems to have completely forgotten resident evil's roots and there are several rooms that you try to enter where the loading is longer than the door opening animation it's a little disconcerting mm. playing the game where you open the door the door loading animation plays and then you just sit there staring at black while the little bloodstained circle animation spins in the bottom right and then the room finally loads in and you're you can continue it wasn't game breaking uh, and it wasn't long enough to like be annoying or anything, but it was noticeable and definitely affected the flow of the game. Uh, I'm, I'm sure it was a necessary concession of getting a game of this you know visual quality running on the Switch, especially with the porting process from one console to another. But it's it's got some concessions to get it running on the platform. But I still enjoyed my time with it, nonetheless. Uh, the last time I, I played this uh, remake of the original Resident Evil was on GameCube, funnily enough. Uh, I bought it on PS4, but I haven't had time to get to it. Uh, it is a terrific game. Uh, I've only played this version the once, uh, but like the the original game that it's based on like is still so ingrained in my memory that I can I can still easily beat it in, in three hours. <laughs> uh, I did did that on the Vita not so long ago on the uh, the classic version. And uh, yeah, I, it's good this one because it, it does change things up a little bit and if you've played like the very, very first version of Resident Evil, uh, this plays with your expectations on the things you think you know or that you think are going to happen, uh, which was really neat. Um, and it also adds in this this whole new uh, enemy. I forget her name, but she's sort of this basement dwelling monster. If you can find her, um, I'm not sure that the story leads you there. Naturally, I can't. It remember. does, or whether she was a secret. Ah, it does. Cool. Um, and that was cool. And it just sort of made the game um, look how I pictured it when I was playing it as a kid, <laughs> which is uh, always. One of the best things these sorts of uh, remakes can do is to sort of nail how you remember it looking, and that that certainly does it. So yeah, I'm still I missed the sale. I'm I'm gonna get this on the physical version if it comes to Australia. I haven't looked into that. Uh, but moving on, uh, so Ginny's been playing a game called Songbird Symphony. Uh, let's hear from her now. Right. So I've been playing two games which neither Andy or Andrew have played, um, but that's okay. I haven't really been focusing on 
I suppose, big ticket titles recently because I've just been super, super preoccupied with Fire Emblem Three Houses. But regardless, I've been playing some pretty charming indies. So I had briefly talked about one of these on a previous episode of the of the show where I just played the demo for um, this game and it was Songbird Symphony. So like I said, it was a game from Singapore, small indie game, which basically plays like um, a rhythm game plus karaoke. Um, so if you didn't listen last time, you basically play a small songbird has been adopted by birds who look nothing like you. And so your entire job is to basically figure out where you've come from um, and and I guess find yourself. And part of this is basically through singing. So you interact with the world through singing and you interact with, I guess, quote unquote, bosses and, and other larger animals through the power of song. I really enjoyed the demo. It was pretty short. Uh, well, I kind of blazed through it to, to get to, I guess, where the story would take you up to. Um, just to see if I would want to get the full game and I'm really glad that I did Um, I thought the demo was really positive but it obviously doesn't show you a whole lot of the story and a whole lot of what what goes on Um, nor do you get like a whole lot of variety in terms of what you see slash find initially in the game and the game kind of feels like it really opens up once you leave the area which the demo actually covers there's a lot of different kinds of birds even some of the smallest characters have very, very individualistic design. So, you know, I just feel like every sort of type of bird or animal that I encountered was distinct. They all had their own personality, whether it's the way that the animal would move or how they would sing or just how they interact with you. I really felt like there was a lot of care put into how these animals were portrayed. And I really, really enjoyed that a lot. The platforming aspect, I was a little less keen on um, after playing through most of the game, um, mainly because a lot of the platforming aspect just kind of feels like a vehicle for the true Shining Star, which is the the karaoke-style rhythm gameplay. I really do enjoy the level design, but the one thing that frustrates me is that the platforming seems to only exist as a way to join different puzzles and levels together. These puzzles are really simplistic. I can kind of see this game being marketed potentially at a younger audience, just because, not not to say that games that have this sort of aesthetic are, are meant to be for children, but I definitely do feel like there's a degree of simplicity here with the mechanics of the game, which I think translate very well to a younger player. And obviously it's very family friendly. I would say that personally, I found the puzzles lacking. I found the platforming lacking, but the rest of the game had just so much personality that it was fine um the music is not symphonic by any means but it fits the aesthetic of the game it fits the all the tunes that you encounter are themed around the characters that are singing these songs because they're basically characters singing songs at you and you're kind of acting them out so i really enjoy that aspect and the care that went into those things some of the songs can be a little bit samey when you're using the same polyphonic texture or monophonic texture continuously you are going to run across common musical themes that's all right and it's sort of not only all rhythm but also about memory because like in karaoke it's kind of like based on knowing how a song plays out and mimicking that 
So you'll have another bird on the animal sing first, and then you will kind of sing after that, and you have to mimic the rhythm um, of that singing as well. And I, I did like the way that the lyrics were there, like I said, karaoke. So I enjoyed that, it is quite nice. And I enjoy the sort of feel-good story behind it, and it just kind of was a really, really nice way to piece together a whole bunch of what people might think would be disparate elements, like platforming, puzzling, rhythm games, karaoke. Um, so I enjoyed it. It was a fun break from something really heavy like Fire Emblem, um, and I would definitely recommend this, especially for someone that is someone who is super focused on the aesthetic of a game, um, or you think that you're someone who really is a rhythm game fanatic. This is not difficult by any means, so if you play rhythm games because you want to be challenged or you want to be emotionally hurt in some way by how difficult a rhythm game is, this is not the kind of game for you, but it is a very, very sweet game um, and a really, really good palate cleanser from all the current titles that are out and about at the moment. So I enjoyed it. And if you're on the fence, please pick up the demo on the eShop. That's what I did before I obviously bought a shell out for the game and I really enjoyed the demo. So yeah, and get a feel for the game before you actually shell out for it. I think it's great. Um, I, I do really feel, again, important to stress that it's from an indie developer in an Asian country. And I'm really pleased with the quality of this game. Okay, Andrew, another game you've been playing, um, and if it was uh, the way it was pitched to me, my first thought was this is definitely a game for Andrew, uh, and that is PictoQuest The Cursed Grids, which I believe is uh, like a, a light RPG mixed with uh, Picross as its battle system. Is that accurate? That's what it tries to sell itself as. That very sadly is not what the game is. Uh, if you don't know what Picross is or nonogram puzzles are, you're given this grid and the grid has numbers on each row on the top and on the left side and you've got to use those numbers as clues to determine where the pixels on the grid need to be filled in and if you figure out all the puzzle or if you figure out all the number clues then you'll have a complete picture filled in and that's that's the basics uh, without getting into all the the complicated ways that those puzzles actually end up working uh, and I love Picross I I always get wrapped up in these games and then I look at my playtime I'm like how did I play this for 40 hours it didn't feel like it <laughs> uh, so there are many you know RPGs out there that also use a puzzle system uh, for their combat and I I, I don't really know how Picross could actually be adapted to that system. So I don't really fault the makers of this game for what they've ended up here with, and they do describe it as having a light RPG aspect to it, and maybe that's accurate. Uh, but I don't, I didn't really feel like playing this that I, I felt much like I was playing an RPG. Uh, how it works is on many of the puzzles not on all of them but on many of them you'll be going up against a monster in a fight air quotes and uh there will be a meter underneath the monster that fills up and when the meter fills up then it attacks you and you lose a chunk of your heart meter and the way you stop the meter from filling up is you solve a puzzle on the nonogram board on the pike on the picross board and if you can fill in a row on the board, then the monster's attack meter will be reset by about 50%, maybe a little more, depending upon where you're at in the story. That's just really the whole game, is just trying to stay ahead of these meters by solving the puzzle fast enough. So it's not really a Picross RPG so much as it is Picross given 
uh, hot seat rules, which if you're an experienced Picross player, you know, that, that won't stress you too much. It's just basically pushing you to play Picross faster is what the end result of this system is. And so if you're a complete newbie to Picross or Nonograms, I imagine you would be very quickly overwhelmed and you would get nowhere in this game. But if you're like me and you've solved thousands and thousands of Picross puzzles and you've played most of the Picross games that are out there on Nintendo platforms, this game will not stress you at all because even though there is this hot seat gameplay added to the Picross system, the puzzles aren't the hardest Picross puzzles I've ever done. I struggled on literally none of them. Uh which is helped by the fact that uh, the assists and autocorrects are enabled by default and cannot be turned off. So uh, if, if you are like me and you, you disable some of those assists when you're playing the standard Picross games, like Jupiter Corporation has this really excellent series called Picross S out on the Switch, and if you like Picross or you want to get into Picross, uh, they have a whole series of those games on Switch. I definitely recommend them. Uh, but I usually turn those assists off, especially uh, telling me when I've made an error. That way, you know, I have to actually solve the puzzle myself. The game isn't just telling me that I've made an error. PictoQuest tells you when you make an error. It does that uh, depending upon the type of map you're in. If you're fighting a monster, the monster gets a free hit on you. Or if you're in one of the treasure chest quests, you just lose a little bit of your total gold. And then it, it fills in the square with the X that you tried to say had a pixel in it and then you move on to the next one and that just kept me moving forward through the game instead of getting stuck on a puzzle in any meaningful way there are four kinds of puzzles you encounter this there's chest puzzles which are just standard pie cross puzzles with standard uh pick cross rules when you finish the puzzle you get a reward uh there's quest puzzles which are just pick cross puzzles have several variations like you have to finish it in a certain amount of time you have to finish it without making a mistake or just rules like that there's one of them you have to solve it asks you to solve the puzzle with your eyes closed but i, I certainly didn't do that i just solved it with my <laughs> eyes open it's like if you want me to do it with my eyes closed just show me the puzzle for a moment then black the screen out instead of just relying on the honor system i'm sure that was a deliberate joke from the developer uh and there's monster puzzles you can fight either a single monster at one time or you can fight multiple monsters and the multiple monster fights was as close as this game's combat system came to being interesting because you do have to use the shoulder buttons to switch between the monsters you're targeting to make sure that you're keeping all of their attack meters down as you're solving uh the squares on the board and then there's the boss monsters who are supposed to be more interesting like they get other powers where they can undo uh, entries you've made on the board but it's such a small number of entries all I really had to do was just watch it where the monster's attack was landing and then just redo them because it was only like four squares that get deleted at a time that was no big deal at all yeah the bosses were none of them stood in my way they all just basically fell over and you do earn gold for completing puzzles and this kind of might have been where the most RPG stuff came in because uh, you can spend your gold in a shop you can spend it on items that restore your health that find puzzle solutions on the board, that impair enemy attack meters, or that give you new heart containers. Now, at the start of the game, I never used an item once. I sold every single one that I got as a reward for finishing the quest puzzles, so that way I could buy the heart containers, which are really expensive, but they give you an extra heart, which is up to two hits on the board. Uh, and 
once I had all the heart containers, then I just spent the rest of my money on heart potions to just keep me topped off on the rare occasions that I was doing bad enough on a puzzle that a monster got me low enough that I might actually die. And let me just say, I went through this whole game, I've beaten it, I've finished every puzzle, not one monster killed me. Uh, by the end of the game, uh, following this method of buying all the heart containers and then just saving the rest of my gold so I could buy heart potions, so that way I could, you know, stay topped off on those rare monsters that did beat me up a little bit. I, I finished the game with over 1,700 extra gold and a health potion at the shop cost 60. <laughs> There's some, I, I don't... I hesitate to say this game is too easy because I might just be on another level of, you know, Picross players. I wouldn't think I was, but playing this, I now suspect I might be uh, in, in that top, you know, 25, top 10% of players now. Uh, I don't want to say to anybody out there, if you buy this game, you're going to have an easy time with it. I'm just saying, if you've played Pycross before, if you're familiar with it, I don't think this game is going to challenge you at all. If you have never played Picross before, I think this game would be a bad introduction to the entire series for you. So I'm not really sure who this is aimed at. Uh, all of this is wrapped up in a plot that may as well not exist. There's this wizard that's stolen a bunch of pictures from this village, and the two protagonists set off after them. One of them is a bland male hero who is just wants to be an adventurer, so he sets out to be an adventurer. And the other one is the daughter of the woman who made all these pictures in the first place and wants to recover them because they're important to her. So I played as the daughter because I felt she actually had some stakes in this plot, but really who you play as makes no difference because both the characters are traveling together in the story. They both talk during cutscenes and nothing happens anyway. Uh, Zelda Twilight Princess Picross on 3DS does a better job of telling a story than this game does, and it doesn't even have exposition. It just has Zelda pictures in it. <laughs> the soundtrack, though, is fantastic. Wow. Uh, it, it does a very good job of you know, being appropriate for each of the settings that you travel through. You, you travel through the different, you know, standard fantasy biomes. The last area is a volcano. Uh, but the music all fits together really well, and there's a lot of different styles. The music was definitely the highlight of the game for me. And I love Picross, or I still love Picross in this game, but the rest of the design that was built around it, that was supposed to be the light RPG elements of it that were the reason I bought this game in the first place, they just ended up being a distraction and an annoyance. So unless you're like a Picross pro and you've already wiped out all the Picross puzzles on the Switch eShop and you're just looking for more, uh, just avoid this game and just play the, the Picross S series by Jupiter Corporation, which are fantastic games and they're a great introduction to the series if you want to learn. Cool. So, uh, great concept, just poor execution from the sound yeah. of Yeah. Like, like I said, I, I don't even know how you would make an RPG combat system work with Picross puzzles. I was excited to find out, and I was disappointed that this developer doesn't really have an idea either. Ah, that's a shame, because uh, I've enjoyed stuff like Puzzle Quest before, um, which is a great game, using puzzles. So yeah, okay, so moving on, uh, Ginny's also been playing a game called Fell Seal. Uh, let's hear from her now. Another game that I played was Fell Seal, Arbiter's Mark, so this has recently come out onto the Switch. It's been on other consoles since I believe May earlier this year, or pot potentially even earlier than that. But this is a tactical RPG, and I know you're probably thinking, Ginny, you're playing Fire Emblem, 
why are you playing another tactical RPG, strategy RPG at the moment? You don't need to do this to yourself. Why? Well, I'm having a lot of fun. <laughs> I'm having a lot of fun. This definitely reminds me a lot more of Final Fantasy Tactics than a Fire Emblem game. You have a lot of class customization abilities in Felseal. Basically, what you're doing is you are creating a death squad of a mix and match of assassins, mages that fight off all manner of otherworldly creatures. Um, it has a high fantasy story. It definitely makes no attempt, I would say, to pass itself off as anything other than a Final Fantasy Tactics homage. So in terms of, I suppose, the world itself, as I would say, the innovation on, 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 the, on the genre, on the, on the previous games, and the classes themselves are the way that this game is innovated, but if you think about everything from, from party makeup, from grinding, from how to use items, and some of the abilities that the classes have, despite the apparent large class variety, it all really, really feels like Final Fantasy Tactics. And as someone who is unabashedly okay with that sort of nostalgia farming, I'm fine with it. I enjoy it. Um, you do unlock more classes, items, and stuff during the game, so you never feel like you're kind of stuck with what you've got. And I would say that is probably one of the main draws that will pull you towards Felseal if you're someone that really enjoys tactics games. But the story is not great. I'm not going to give any like particular spoilers at the moment. But obviously, there's a lot of a lot of cliches that exist. Again, as an FF tactics homage as an homage to other older games, there are always going to be cliches which persist, right? And, um, I mean, we've all seen the whole Demon God storyline <laughs> a million times. I wouldn't say I was particularly surprised by any of the twists that were coming. Not particularly far in, I would say. I still got quite a bit of the game to go, but this is kind of like how I felt when I was playing Tales of um, Berseria, I kind of felt like, oh, Tales of Symphonia, sorry, I, I knew where it was going to go when I was playing it. That didn't stop me from enjoying it at all, but if you're someone that's looking for, like, a really, really riveting story, this is serviceable, definitely, but I think the best part of this entire game is the combat. The way that you can mix and match your classes and mix and match the abilities, there's endless opportunity here. As someone who enjoys tactical combat, this is sort of, well, this will be right up your alley. Um, the combat is the highlight of the game. It's incredibly well designed. You have an immense amount of units that you can draw on from your pool. And the animation is delightful. Um, it kind of reminds me, I suppose, a little bit more of Disgaea, potentially. The way that the animations are really sort of... I, I don't want to say as over the top as Disgaea, because it's really, really hard to be as over the top as Disgaea. But I can see that design philosophy there in Felseal, and it really is quite appealing to me. You'll have animals erupting out of the ground, you know, you have all manner of skills causing all manner of wild effects, and I really do enjoy that. And obviously having lots of combos with different classes is really nice, and just the synergy that you that you feel in combat is great. I really enjoy it, and I really wish that that same synergistic feel kind of carried through the rest of the game. That would have been really valuable to me. But I do enjoy Felseal. Um, it tries to do some things to make hallmarks of the genre um, like grinding, less painful, um, but you do definitely feel it. And if you're not someone that's a hardcore tactics RPG fan, you may well sour on this well before the story's actually up. But check out some reviews about it first, obviously, watch some footage of it. Um, you'll see what I mean, I think, when you see some footage about just how much this game really is a love letter to Final Fantasy Tactics. 
And as a big time fan of that game, I couldn't pass this up. So um, if you're in my boat, I would recommend it. If you've liked any of my suggestions previously, we might have the same taste in games. You are probably going to like it. But if not, um, this is probably one that you might want to give a bit of an esoteric miss. So I've been playing uh, a lot of Doom Classic where I should have been playing Fire Emblem. Um, mainly because I, I'm i finding it easier to jump into with limited time. Whereas I feel like Fire Emblem, I need you know a big chunk of time to invest in it. Um, and so I, I hinted at it the the episode that uh, the surprise released uh, and said you know they they hold up fairly well despite being like really old like 93 um and the fact that i've sort of plowed through the whole first game sort of says yes it does still hold up at least rhythmically it's not obviously not as sophisticated as as modern shooters or you know you, you can't even look up and down but that that basic rhythm of your positioning uh, gun management and you know knowing how best to take down each enemy still holds up incredibly well and it's still a lot of fun uh, I do love Doom Classic uh, I have to admit though I couldn't remember whether I've actually beaten it before um, and this was evidenced in the fact that I was surprised to see four episodes in this game instead of three so just to give you a bit of background if, if you're uh, a young'un uh, the original Doom was never available in stores uh originally it was they gave away the first episode which was uh, a bunch of levels they gave that away for free as shareware and then if you wanted the full thing you had to order it mail order which was a an interesting model it worked (laughs) it worked for all of the 90s (laughs) yeah uh and so they released the game in sort of like episodic chunks so uh, the the main game is episode one to three, and then episode four is like a a bonus set of levels. So one to three, played through, loved every second. Um, you know, it's got a proper difficulty curve. Like every time you go into a new level, there's new challenges. The level design still holds up particularly particularly well. Um, I was enjoying the rhythm of it right up until the end. And then you get to episode four. Now, I didn't know what this was, because I'd never seen it before. I started it. um, I've been playing this on the standard difficulty, which has hurt me plenty. And the first two episodes, sorry, the first two levels in this episode were just beyond me. Like, the the way it just jumped up was an incredible difference to the end of uh, episode three. Um, So I went on the internet and I had a look. and, And basically these these maps in episode four are meant to be like challenge maps and they admittedly took no care on with them at all it was sort of something they were ordered to do and they actually came out after doom 2 had released so they were sort of done as like a a bridge the gap sort of thing and it's really weird because um the first two episodes sorry keep saying episodes the first two levels in particular are are really difficult and then the rest after that in episode four are just like standard levels so the whole thing was really bizarre to me um but the fact that they you know they they confessed they didn't take much care with that because they wanted to work on other stuff it, it kind of shows it's a very inconsistent episode but when, once you get past those first two levels uh it does get more normal i did admittedly have to knock the difficulty down a notch on that fourth episode where i was absolutely fine on the others um, just to give you some context, the first 
level in that episode four just it it gives you barely any ammo um you only get a shotgun and a pistol and then it drops in one of the hardest uh, enemies in the game at close quarters and you just you got no way of finishing him so yeah so i struggled with that a bit but uh, overall love my time with it um it's you know did enough to keep me off fire emblem and uh, i jumped straight into doom 2 after finishing it which uh I'm also enjoying. I'm sort of like ten levels in now. That has a different structure because it was released as a as a full game. After it's you know it is kind of more of the same that one, but it does have uh, you know an extra weapon in the super shotgun and uh, some of the other enemies that were that we know from Doom today, such as the the skeletons wearing uh, football pads for some reason <laughs> that shoot rockets and uh, yeah so. I highly recommend checking them out. Uh, we we did talk about the um, the fact that you had to sign into your Bethesda account to play them at all, and they promised they were patching that out. That hasn't happened yet. And I had a situation yesterday, I think it was, where I uh, I had the game in sleep mode and I booted it back up, and then it kept pausing the game every like ten seconds to tell me that it had disconnected from Bethesda's servers. That's a normal thing for games that have logins like this. Yeah. Like Diablo Three does that too. You know, it was, you know, apparent that you you only had to sign in the first time and then if you were offline it would just work fine. I I must admit I did, re- you know, close out of the game completely, restart it and it was okay, but it's just one, one of those things to be aware of because it was really annoying. Like, you're in the flow of combat and then you get this, you know, pop-up pausing your action just saying oh hey and I think that's, I still think that's unacceptable for a, what, 26-year-old offline game it's just it's ridiculous so but they haven't patched out their need to steal your email account yet so hopefully when that comes in <laughs> that will fix that uh, i posted a video of that happening on twitter if you wanted to see it so yeah okay so the final game we're going to talk about today is dc universe online uh one of the switches few mmos uh, i enjoyed this a lot on the ps3 and uh haven't played it uh, at all since uh, it was on the PS4 briefly. I think I installed it but never actually booted it up. Um, and it's uh, now free to play. You just have to buy a disc for permission to, to play it and that's not a thing anymore. Uh, so, Andrew, how is it on Switch? So DC Universe Online is a free-to-play, massively multiplayer online rpg and i think there are certain expectations about these games especially the ones that bill themselves as mmos i think very few of them actually apply Uh, i'm talking about games like star trek online or skyforge or even warframe which is out on switch Uh, these games they're online and they're multiplayer but they never feel massive you know you're always in really small instanced environments if you're playing with other people at all, it's usually only, you know, maybe four or five other people at most. And sometimes you go to like a, a city where you'll see maybe a couple dozen people or to, especially in a game like Warframe, you'll go to an open world environment or an open world planet. And these planets are just barren. Nobody is in them. So even though you have these environments that is has the potential to feel like an MMO, they even feel even less like one because they've created these huge open world environments that nobody is in. So uh, 
usually when I play a free to play MMO, I'm I'm pretty disappointed and I I just refuse to even uh consider them MMOs, especially like Skyforge. Skyforge is absolutely not an MMO. I don't care how much they sell it as one uh, or Star Trek Online, which is a game I do like, but is not an MMO. But DC Universe Online, I am surprised to say mostly defies but actually also fulfills these expectations playing this at the outset i was often reminded of the game that i often refer to when i'm talking about mmos world of warcraft uh and it's the first free-to-play game where i've actually had that feeling you know i i'm playing this game and i'm like oh this does remind me of playing world of warcraft and it, there's a couple reasons for this. First and foremost is it actually has an open world, which puts you in right away. It's not an open world that you unlock later. This game begins in an open world, and the player hub is a main base, and there are dozens of other people there checking their mail, talking to each other, setting up groups. This actually feels like a massively multiplayer online game. It's kind of amazing since it is free to play. And if you've never played an MMO uh, during its opening hours, I think you've already missed your opportunity in this in DC Universe Online, but as soon as those servers open up on the first day and there are just dozens and dozens and dozens of other people around you all trying to finish the same quests, there's no experience like it in video games. And I actually had that experience in DC Universe Online. After I got done with the character creation process, I was set loose in Gotham and I had a quest to uh, achieve uh, as I was starting to work against uh, the Scarecrow who was releasing fear gas into the city. So I had to uh, defeat some scarecrow hallucinations and i had to smash some tanks that had the scarecrow's fear gas in it and there were many many other people in the same area competing for all of these spawns and it, it i can't really describe it uh past that if you've never played an mmo on the first day it, it's just an electrifying experience definitely do your best to play an MMO on launch day because there's nothing else like it. And DC Universe Online is the first free-to-play game that I actually had that feeling in, and I was absolutely delighted. Uh, but this feeling is quickly surpassed. Uh, I, I just, I'm not sure what it is about the game that it seemed like many people were not just continuing past the first few quests, but I very quickly outstripped them uh, and quickly got into corners of Gotham City that there just weren't many people in. And looking around the city, you can still feel the budget of the game and its pricing model. The city feels very generic. There are landmarks, like, you know, buildings that are supposed to be uh, settings from the comics, but they're just buildings that have just been designated as these things. They don't look special or unique. And I compare that to, like, the, the level design in the Arkham games, where, especially, like, in Arkham City, like, every single building in there is a building that is a reference in some way to something that exists in the comics. And the Gotham City in this game is just not like that. It's just 
buildings for the sake of buildings so that way they have places where you can punch people in the face in it's a pretty disappointing environment now character creation is very robust there's all kinds of things that you pick uh, you start off by picking your alignment you can be a hero or a villain and then you pick your mentor like if you're playing as a hero you can have your mentor be superman or wonder woman or batman uh, and which one you pick depends upon where your starting area like superman and wonder woman they players being mentored by those characters start off in metropolis or if you're mentored by batman then you head to gotham and you also select your power set which is where like your special abilities come from uh, i've made two characters so far my first one was a tech character so she used uh different you know gadgets to do her special attacks and my second character was a sorcery character so he used all kinds of magic spells and flinging orbs of energy and things like that and there's also you know your standard power sets you know like ice and fire and there's a whole set of of power sets like more than half of the power sets are locked behind a paywall and I was looking at those, and I, I didn't really feel like I was missing on anything except for the quantum power set, which looked pretty cool. Uh, so it's disappointing that there are powers you have to pay to get, but again, I didn't feel that I was really restricted from making the kind of character I wanted to play as by virtue of these paywalls. And you also pick your movement ability, which determines how your character moves around the map. You you can have your character have flight or have super agility or super speed. Uh, my, my hero character has super agility, so they can run fairly fast, or they can also use gadgets to fly across the sky uh, and uh, to leap up buildings. Uh, they get a grappling hook, for example, to go up the side of buildings. Uh, and my villain character I went with super speed, which was really fun, because the super speed characters can just run in a straight line, completely unobstructed by anything. They can run on top of water. They can run up the side of buildings. I think flight is the most practical power, because it's the least restricted. Like, with, super, with my super speed character, uh, I don't think... Unless I can actually climb up a wall to get to a certain place, uh, they're not going to be able to just go in a straight line uh, like you could with super flight or even using gadgets and agility. But just for how much fun it is to just uh, have the Flash's super speed power, I really enjoy my super speed character. And lastly, you pick your weapon specialization, uh, which is how your basic attacks work. So you can have guns, you can have various weapons, or you can choose to be a fist fighter, or you can even choose to have energy blasts come out of your hand. And there's a whole combo system, which is actually surprisingly robust, that is all built out from which weapon you pick. So character creation is very involved, and you end up with a pretty unique character, not even just getting into the myriad of appearance options that you can choose from, uh, even though most people just by virtue of what is considered cool, end up making a characters that look basically the same. But you can come up with some pretty out-there character designs for your costume, in addition to the very unique character that you're going to get in terms of power sets. Now, the world is divided up into open-world environments. There's Gotham and Metropolis, which are open-world sandboxes. They're not very big, but uh, I was very happy to see a free-to-play MMO that's primarily set in an open-world sandbox. And then after you do a few quests, you unlock the dungeons, and you can group up to go in these dungeons, but the way the game is built, it, it kind of 
feels like it, it shunts you into doing these dungeons solo. And you go inside and you do a short quest inside this little interior section. You fight a supervillain or a superhero, depending upon your alignment. And the story ends and you move on to the next quest line. And that seems to be the, the basic loop for the open world. There are PvP events that happen in the open world, but I never really saw anybody interacting with them. And then once you leave the open world and you head back to your faction's hideout, uh, you can actually queue up for instances, just like in World of Warcraft's Dungeon Finder. The story seems to quickly outgrow Gotham and Metropolis, because like, there's only so much story you can really do in the DC universe, only staying in these two environments. There's a lot of story, but it, it still limits itself. So like right from the start, you can go to Area 51, and you can help repel Brainiac's armies as they are trying to steal some information from Area 51. Uh, then after that, you head to Gorilla City, and you help repel an attack on Gorilla City. I've seen uh, loading screens which reference content set in Themyscira and Atlantis. So these uh, instances really seem to go places, but as far as an, another open-world environment past the Gotham and Metropolis areas, I haven't seen anything. I don't know if I have to get to a higher level, or if I have to pay money to access these areas, or if they just don't exist. Uh, I, I would hope, like certainly Themyscira and Atlantis, at, le at least would be available as open world environments, not just as just instances, but it's a, it's a free-to-play game, so you have to accept certain limitations of it. Now, as a free-to-play game, I've talked a little bit about the premium features, but there is a lot of stuff in this. I haven't even begun to fully understand all the premium features in this game, but there are premium currencies. Uh, an item I consistently was looting was something called a Shazam Temporal Container, which I have to open up with uh, a special item, which you can either buy with the premium currency or you can earn by doing a daily quest in the instance menu. Uh, I still haven't opened any of these Shazam temporal containers because I just haven't gotten enough parts to make one of these keys to open it yet. So there's definitely a push there to get you to spend money so you can open these containers as you, uh, as you get them. Uh, more than half of the power skill sets, as I said, are locked behind a paywall. Uh, if you want more than two character slots, there's a paywall for that, but you do get two. So that's enough to make a hero and a villain character so you can see both sides of the game that way. That's fairly generous for a free-to-play game. There's a, a slot in the marketplace for new episodes. I have no idea what new episodes refers to, like if you have to buy those to actually uh, see the full breadth of the game. Like, you know, if there's a point you reach in the story where you're at a paywall. If you don't pay any more, you're not going to keep playing the game with other people, basically like an expansion pack. Uh, or if those are just just bonuses, I, I don't know. I cannot tell from the marketplace. And in many free-to-play games, there usually is a way to earn the premium currency either by getting it from other players or just by playing and just getting it as rare drops or just as like weekly rewards or anything i did not see a single way to earn the premium currency in this game so if there's something that you really want i think you're really going to end up paying money for it but there is a subscription fee for this game because this is an mmo and it even links you to a subscription page on the eShop, which i'd never seen before but there really is a thing there where you can set it up just like your nintendo switch online account you you can pay monthly or every three months every six months every year and it's $15 a month which I've talked about World of Warcraft several times that's what World of Warcraft costs 
I was pretty happy with this game for being a free-to-play MMO, but this game is no World of Warcraft. So $15 a month for this game uh, to get all the paywall features removed for you. Uh, I guess if you're a big DC fan, you know, that might be a decision you could make for yourself. But I, I really, I don't see the value in this game of $15 a month being a, a World of Warcraft long-time player like I am and looking at everything I got out of that game for $15 a month versus what I would get out of this game for $15 a month. It's not happening. Having said all that, you know, this is a free-to-play MMO. There's nothing in this that requires you to pay anything. You can play just for fun, uh, which I'm sure is how most people who play this game will do. Uh, They won't be listening to this podcast. They don't browse Twitter for the latest news. They don't follow all the gaming blogs. They're just casual gamers who just play games for fun. I could see that audience getting a lot of mileage out of this game but like i think if you're a really you know hardcore in-depth gamer who follows everything and you know plays games four to six hours a day i I see it burning through this pretty quick it's just it's not aimed at our kind of audience but i think if you're a dc fan and you just want to immerse yourself in this environment and you want to make yourself your original hero and you want to be you know Superman's mentor or Batman's latest ward, you know, you can do that as well. And I could see there being some appeal in that too. But in terms of sinking uh, $150 a year into this game, no, (laughs) I don't see that ever happening. Uh, So I enjoyed my time with DC Universe Online, but I think I'm I'm done with it now. Uh, But, you know, it's a, it was a very satisfying experience. This is an eight-year-old game, so there's eight years of content for you to catch up on this if you've never played it before. And it also was a PS3 game, so it runs on the Switch pretty dang well, especially in handheld mode. I spent a whole night playing it handheld. It was just like playing it on docked. I didn't see any difference between them at all. Uh, but having said all this, uh, when is Star Trek Online going to hit Switch? Because I would really like to play that now. Yeah, so that's DC Universe Online. Uh, it's 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 pretty good for uh, if you go into it with the expectations of a free-to-play multiplayer game. Okay, so what are we playing this coming week? Andrew, what are you playing? I'll be playing the other half of the Resident Evil Origins Collection, Resident Evil Zero, and also Friday the 13th Ultimate Slasher Edition, which is an asymmetrical multiplayer game where uh, one player is Jason trying to kill the other seven players who are all camp counselors at Camp Crystal Lake who try to escape. Uh, Could be cool. Nice. I'm going to carry on with Doom 2, uh, play Fire Emblem in between, and I'm hopefully going to start Doom 3 if I can get to finish this week. Uh, There is the matter of the the master levels. I haven't decided whether I'm going to play those in Doom 2 yet, so... Yeah, Ginny is going to be playing Fire Emblem New Game Plus. I have no idea how she's got to that point already, but there we go. Thanks for listening to this episode of Switch Focus Podcast. If you enjoyed this episode, please leave us a review on iTunes. It really helps us to get noticed. You can also listen and subscribe on Stitcher, TuneIn, Spotify, and other podcast services. Uh, Be sure to join our Discord server to interact with our lively community. You can follow us on Twitter, YouTube, Facebook, and at switchfocuspodcast.com. For updates, news, and other content, check out the links in the show notes.
If you'd like to support the show, you can buy us a coffee, and details are on our website. If you want to follow us individually, Andy is at Flame Roast Toast, I am at Play Critically, streaming at twitch.tv slash playcritically, and Ginny is at Ginny Woes.